people are limited when women are limited because they're women you can't get a phd you can't go to medical school you can't do this you can't do that then it's not just the woman's dreams who are dashed really the stunting of her comparative advantage is what's happening but when we think about it like economists right everybody else who would benefit from you being able to do those things in a market economy is missing out on the cultivation of your comparative advantage Hello and welcome to Women, Economic Progress, and Markets, a limited special edition podcast series where we're going to be discussing markets and the role that they play in women's lives. I'm your host, Rosemary Fike, and in this episode, I will be speaking with Dr. Anne Rathbone Bradley about her work and the ways in which she thinks that markets may have helped or hindered women's social and economic progress. Dr. Bradley is the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Fund for American Studies. She's also Acton Affiliate Scholar and a visiting scholar at the Bernard Center for Women, Politics, and Public Policy. She's a lecturer for the Institute for Humane Studies and the Foundation for Economic Education. And she is one of my favorite people to mm-hmm. encounter at economic conferences. Our shared interest in this topic uh, puts us on a lot of panels and colloquia together. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Rosie, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so honored that you would invite me, so thank you. And yes, I always enjoy when we share not only panels together, but dinners and all those fun things uh, where we can talk about these ideas. So it's great to be here. Thank you. And as you are aware, the purpose of this podcast series is to kind of think about the ways that markets and economic progress have kind of historically helped uh, or affected women and their well-being. Um, And so we kind of want to think more about markets and how they might offer, you know, a, a holistic approach to dealing with the issues that that women find important. Um, so, so this, I think these are really important conversations, really timely conversations to have, especially for people who care about personal and professional freedom, um, because uh, a lot of the modern uh, policy recommendations of people who call themselves feminists are, are mm-hmm. seeming interventions in kind of the free market process. So I want to have a more nuanced conversation about what feminism means. Well, and so I would love to that end, ask you, you know, just basically, how do you define feminism? Like, what do you think feminism is? Um, and what kind of issues do you think are important that we should be paying attention to if we care about women? Certainly, this is a great way to start it off. I think, you know, kind of defining our terms and what does this mean in the first place is really necessary for us to have a civil conversation kind of socially about what we do, right? So you have already alluded to the fact that sometimes the proposed kind of um, responses of people that claim to be feminist might, you know, might be kind of uh, getting us in the wrong way or perhaps creating more unintended consequences. So that's why I also think economists are really well poised to discuss this. So as an economist who also, like yourself, thinks a lot about the importance of economic freedom, and I'll come back to that in a moment. I think that kind of the best definition of feminist feminism is the pursuit of the equal application and extension of the rule of law to women, 
right? So not just men who have historically benefited from different aspects of the rule of law, right? Property rights protections, um, protections of their businesses, or just even access, right? The ability to open a business, the ability to own property, the ability to choose, right? So we use kind of the tagline um, being pro-choice, but I want to use that in the broadest sense of that word, which is um, having choices and, and, you know, our conversation today, and I think what needs to be injected more intentionally into the broader conversation about feminism is the role of markets in all of this. And I think there are economists like yourself who are doing this, but I think it largely gets left off the table as kind of an avenue for extending the, these franchises to women. Uh, where either they're still absent or whether they've been historically absent. So that's what I think it means. I think it means true equality before the law. And I think that's important because I think it empowers our agency and it gives us the ability to make these kind of really personal decisions about how we're going to live our lives. And when we don't have that as women, historically, other people do have it, right? And that means that they are able to constrain our choices uh, tell us what to do, tell us where to live, tell us who we can talk to. Uh, and so we can talk too about historically how that's changed. And I think really an important part of that conversation is what is the role of markets and all of that. So I'm very excited to be talking about that with you. I think these are still issues that are around today. Um, you know, when we broadly think about economic freedom, we see a lot of divergence across the world in terms of the access and opportunities that women have. If you look at a place like the United States, we can see a place where there has been a lot of gains that have been made by women, both legally, but I would also argue culturally. Um, right. So the perception of what women should be able to do is really important uh, in terms of kind of informal norms that drive cultural constraints that can either liberate us or limit us. And so it's not just about changing the law. Um, it's actually about changing the views, the persistent views that people have had that have been kind of anti-female. Um, and so kind of, again, I think the market can play a really important and powerful and dynamic role in changing those cultural beliefs for the better. Absolutely. I think one of the things that tends to be missing from a lot of economic conversations about you know, women's rights and, and women's well-being are these informal cultural norms. A lot of the economic literature that looks at um, you know, labor market inequality, they kind of focus on the choices that women make and, oh, women have different preferences and so they make different choices than men. And this leads to, you know, disparate outcomes in, in the labor market. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot of conversation about how the informal institutions shape those choices that we make and those preferences in the first place. Um, so I think that that's a hugely important thing to bring up. It's not just about the formal rules. It's also mm -hmm. about this bottom up way that we speak to each other and treat each other. Um, and that requires hard work to change that. That's not something you can just legislate away. Right. And, um, you know, we talk about in economics, the stickiness of institutions, right? And that um, the, the existing, like what I like to call the institutional matrix or inf institutional infrastructure has come to be from a long process of evolving over time. And so changing it is really hard, right? And so I think that is a really important point um, and maybe that should change the conversation that modern feminists have about what to do, 
where there are inequalities, where there are still problems, especially in kind of very wealthy economies like the United States that perform really well on things like the Human Freedom Index, which is inclusive of these types of disparate outcomes for women or different opportunities. Um, so I think we're doing a much better job. A lot of your work is in this area, right, of being able to measure these things and track them, because if we can't, then it's hard to kind of pinpoint what the problems are. And then I think also hard to pinpoint the solutions. But it seems to me that policy and kind of policy changes and legal changes are downstream from cultural changes, at least in a democracy. And so we should care a lot about what people think and we should care a lot about what they're agitating for. Um, and I know we'll get into this more today, but just it seems to me that the market is an avenue for emancipation and it's left off the table in the conversation. Um, people tend to believe that we need to make political changes first and like that stuff will take care of itself. And maybe that's true sometimes, but I think we need to be thinking about both of these kind of spheres or arenas of human decision-making and, and human choice. Yeah, and I really hope that that's kind of the bulk of, of what we spend mm -hmm. our time talking about today. Um, I do wanna ask before we get into you know, how do you see markets um, as being this channel for, for change for women, um, I do want to ask about uh, does gender disparity or gender inequality or kind of informal gender norms that might hold women back, um, is that only a problem for women, do you think? Or are there costs to other people as well? So in other words, when we have these existing gender inequalities, yeah. are you saying, you know, do only women bear the cost of that or are there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, certainly there are external costs, right? Because if, if I'm limited because I'm a woman in what I can become, I mean, you and I are both professional economists. This has been traditionally a male dominated um, profession. And traditionally, currently, currently, know. right. It's getting better. I think it's still it's I mean, getting so of, much better. But yes, there's there's been lines at the ladies room at the past couple of conferences I've been at, which have been exciting. It's a good thing. It's a really good thing. Absolutely. And so uh, your point is well taken. There's a lot of, of room for more positive change. But I think if, if you were and I were pursuing a PhD in economics 70 years ago, right, um, it would have been a different story and different outcomes for both of our individual lives, for sure. And those costs would not just be borne by us, right? Dreams lost, opportunities missed. Those are borne by us, but they're born by everyone. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. What I mean, and I think this is an insight of markets. And, you know, the person that I think of a lot when I think about this kind of ideas is Julian Simon. Mm -hmm. um, and so Julian Simon was making a pro person, right? A pro human argument. And what he was saying is that people are the source. They are the, they're the source of human creativity and they are the, they're the source or the engine of problem solving. And what they need is economic freedom, right? So we don't have to kind of worry about um, people just over consuming if we actually think about the full breadth and scope of the human person. And so the reason I bring that up, because I think that insight is applicable to answer your question, which is that when people are limited, when women are limited because they're women, you can't get a PhD, you can't go to medical school, you can't do this, you can't do that, then it's not just the woman's dreams who are dashed really the stunting of her comparative advantage is what's happening. But when we think about it like economists, right? Everybody else who would benefit from you being able to do those things in a market economy is missing out 
on the cultivation of your comparative advantage. So markets are so inherently social and intertwined. They intertwine us with our fellow human beings that that's how we really should think about the costs of this. It's not just the cost to you or me. I don't I didn't get to get a PhD. I'll do something else. Right. It's what's lost socially when we can't express and, you know, kind of help others with our gifts and our talents. Yeah. So when we get channeled in a direction that is not the direction we would choose for ourselves, um, when economic freedom is limited, the scope of our ability to exchange with other people are, are, is also limited. Um, and, you know, Adam Smith even recognized that that's going to be very damaging um, and limiting for a society's potential to grow. That's right. Um, so I think that's such an important thing to, to mention because a lot of feminists say that, you know, of course, men benefit from this system that might limit the options of women, but if you're thinking about it more economically and more socially, it is not clear that anybody benefits from that kind of system. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you're just limiting the unleashing of human creativity. And so I think it's easier for people to think about this when they look at the kind of poorest parts of the world today, right? Because you see um, examples of how human labor is tied up in what we would consider very mundane things. And so, you know, for me to go get a glass of clean water takes almost zero time, almost zero dollars and almost zero calories, right? I just go to my refrigerator, I put a cup in under the dispenser and I have water. But if you're a woman living, for example, in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa today, all of your energy is dedicated to this task and the result, the water you drink is nothing compared. What she drinks is nothing compared to what I drink. So it's easy for us to look at that and say, wow, this is really holding up her ability to care for her family, care for herself, do things she wants to do, right? Comparative advantage is kind of out the window because she's just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. I don't think we, it's always obvious to people that that economic way of looking at it is applicable when we're talking about not allowing women enter, enter some professions or industries. So it's these kind of truths of economics are always applicable. Mm -hmm. uh, we might not, as you say, kind of, it's not as obvious, right? So we have to apply that economic thinking to it, no matter what part of the world we're looking at. It's always, you know, it has this really significant cost side to it. One of the things that you just made me think of with your story about getting water was the, the great as an economic educator, I'm sure you're familiar with the Hans Rosling video about the magic washing machine. Yes. Um, and it just, you made me think about that and how uh, to, to somebody who grew up with a washing machine, I, I was not wealthy by any means, but I definitely always had access to a washing machine. Um, I kind of take that for granted. But if you think about that market innovation and how much time and effort it has saved women, um, doing laundry, sometimes it takes me multiple days, but that's because I, I forget that I started a load of laundry and I left it in the washer and I have to kind of start all over again. Um, but, you know, grandparents and great grandparents of ours that didn't have access to these things, it was a multi-day back-breaking endeavor mm -hmm. to wash your family's clothes. Um, and now this in wonderful innovation saves that time you know, yes, women are still largely in the domain of doing that work, but it's so much less time consuming and effort, you know, consuming fewer calories, which is something I don't normally think about. But, you know, 
just the amount of other resources you have to use to be able to engage in that work when you don't have those those forms of technology. It's just kind of a miracle. It is. It is. And don't you think it's possible? I agree with you that women um, in a country like the United States still might do a lot more laundry than men. But the fact that it's now not backbreaking calorie intensive work that takes all, all day long actually might be something that neutralizes the gender around the production of it. Right. So like it's just as easy maybe for um, your husband or my husband to go upstairs. In fact, this is anecdotal, but I almost never do the laundry my husband has such a routine about it that he's like, please don't do it because you're going to mess up my routine, which <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy with that division of labor, but it's easy, right? Because we're pushing buttons. We're lifting something momentarily. We're pushing a button. We're so wealthy that we get to forget and push the button again in two days because, you, you know, everybody's left the laundry and the washing machine and then you have to wash it again. This is just a pure luxury that's afforded to us by living in a place with lots of economic freedom. And again, it's an extension of kind of the egalitarian benefits of markets, right? Which is now, you know, you couldn't ask your husband to do it for you 100 years ago because these roles were so predefined and so time consuming. He, even if he wanted to, really couldn't, right? So it's so specialized of a household task. These tasks are not as specialized anymore. It's pushing a button. I don't even know how my washing machine really works. And that's a huge, as you say, I like the word miracle. It's basically a miracle, right? It's like I push a button, take it out, put it in another machine, it dries it. And, you know, I get to not smell bad and have clean clothes. And that's amazing. Yes. Um, so that's one way that markets have clearly brought benefits to women's lives, right? These technological advancements that make even the, you know, household labor that we are engaged in a lot easier freeing up our time to kind of do other things. But what are some of the other channels that you think economic freedom might offer for, for women and their well-being? So I, I also, you know, we talked maybe a little bit about this already, but I just think it's the ability for women to actually become specialists, right? So it's not just, and, and I think these two things are very related to each other, which is the less time I have to engage in really hard household production because we still all have to eat every day. Somebody has to make the food or get food, right? Mm -hmm. And we all have to kind of clean ourselves, clean our bodies, we shower, all these types of things that we do that are so much easier. Cleaning the house is so much easier. So we've already talked about that. But I think that's then related to the ability for women who have historically been kind of involved explicitly in household production to engage in production outside of the home. Um, and so one thing is related to the other. And I think economic freedom provides an avenue. And the other thing we haven't, you know, kind of explicitly talked about, but the market economy provides really powerful incentives to overcome historic discriminatory practices. Because in a market economy, I really, as a as an employer, you know, operating in a firm or as an entrepreneur myself, it is incumbent upon me you know, within the context of me having to compete against other people who want to sell you the same good or service to really get the best talent at any given time. And why wouldn't that be a woman? Of course, it could be a woman, right? Historically, it hasn't been a woman because they haven't had the access. But markets create this kind of um, void in the darkness, right? They kind of open a door. And once the doors open, you know, you see all of the possibilities that come out of allowing women to participate in the market economy. And so I think it really does in a very much more 
swift way kind of do away with historical prejudices. It's it's not perfect, right? It doesn't work overnight. These things take a long time. And you could see historical discriminatory practices remain for a long time. And we've talked about that, right? That's why attitudes, ideas, what we value matters a lot for kind of how we're going to relate to one another in society. But just opening up that access point of economic freedom, I think really kind of furthers along the emancipation project, if you will. One of the things I like to, to bring up when talking about kind of relaxing formal constraints, because as you mentioned, uh, one of the projects I work on for the Fraser Institute is tracking uh, women's economic rights and kind of the barriers they face that men don't have to face. And I like to talk a little bit about how those, those barriers limit people from challenging social norms as well. Those rigid barriers, um, you know, I might want to be a trailblazer and get a job in a field that's not traditionally a female-oriented uh, field. But if there's a law in place that prevents me from, from doing that, I can't even push back on those norms if I want to. Um, and so it's kind of, it's very entangled, these mm -hmm. formal and informal constraints. Um, so it's messy. A lot of people steer clear of even kind of talking about it. And I think it, it can become really overwhelming for us to say, well, what are we going to do? Right. Mm -hmm. And we can't change all the way everybody thinks overnight. We can't change laws and rules overnight. We can't, I mean, these things become, I think they leave us feeling very overwhelmed, um, and it's understandable, but I, I do, I'm an optimist about that. And maybe that's just part of my personality, but I do think if you look at the long, um, you know, kind of record of history, there's a lot of progress that's been made, which gives me reason to believe more progress is on the way, uh, or at least it could be, right? It's, right. it's fully possible that we can kind of make more um, improvements, have more successes in this regard in terms of women's freedoms and women's rights, not just in the United States, but around the globe. Um, so I think we do, because if we just, if we just think it's, we can't do anything, then we're not going to do anything. So I also think this is a problem with modern feminism. It's just like a very much, there's no progress that's been made narrative and the sky is falling. And then what are we left with? If that's the case, it's like, I don't know, you know, there's not much I can do and it's, it's a miserable reality, but, um, you know, Deirdre McCloskey, who's near and dear to both of our hearts. I think she's really good on a lot of these issues, but I think she kind of taps into kind of maybe it's an insight of sociology, which is that people kind of seem to be attracted to bad news. I think I heard her one time in a conference say I should write books with kind of really negative, the sky is falling kind of titles because people buy those books because that's kind of where we are. It's like, oh my gosh, you know? So I think modern feminism actually shoots itself in the foot by not recognizing how far we've come. You can recognize how far we've come and say there's still a lot of work to do. But I almost think it's like they don't, they, the people who espouse these beliefs just want to reject progress and they have to have a sky is falling narrative. And maybe this, there's kind of some public choice implications here too, right? Because if that's your claim, then you can claim to like, I need some power. Because if right. I have power, I can change the rules. And, and if, I, if I'm in charge, you can trust me to change the rules for the better. One of the things that your work touches on that I think is interesting um, you talk about women uh, at a time when their rights are very, very, very limited, but having like a little sliver of mm -hmm. religious freedom uh, was enough to help them improve their well-being. 
So, so maybe that's why you're an optimist. You're kind of thinking about maybe your own work and the amazing things mm -hmm. that women were able to accomplish even under those constraints. Can you talk to us a little bit about about that work? Because I think it's I think people would be really interested in it. Oh, certainly. Um I would love to. And thank you for asking me. Yeah. So this is where we kind of shared a, a panel um, and talking about these important issues for women. And I'm kind of taking a historical look here, looking at kind of um, early America. So 17th and 18th century women. And for the context of people who think about your work, right? We know economic freedom matters a lot. We've extended that to kind of start thinking about and measuring human freedom which are also really important variables, right? Freedom of association, um, freedom of movement. I mean, I can move today from Virginia where I live to California. I don't have to ask permission, right? Um, so there are women in the world today that still don't have those luxuries. And so being able to track those things is really important. And I think economic freedom is, is hugely important as a framework for us to think about, again, what are the most productive institutions for human agency? And so what I wanted to do is take that thinking <laughs> and go way back to a time when we have no data on economic freedom, right? We also, I, I kind of think a lot about the intersection between economic freedom and political freedom, right? And so um, we don't also have good data on, you know, if we could rank political freedom um, in 1750, you know, we don't have data for what that would be, but you can still tell an important story by looking at what women were able to do at that time and what they weren't able to do. And so that's kind of what I tried to do. And, and what I'm thinking about there is really women did not have economic rights in the way we think about American women having them today. Again, you and I can choose to go to graduate school, we have to get in, but we can we can apply, right? Um, and we can get hired as professors. Um, all those things. This is not obtain obtainable to a woman in 1750, certainly. Um, so she really doesn't have a lot of economic rights outside of her husband. And even then, so there were some kind of instances where women had autonomy or they were allowed to kind of run their husband's businesses. But this is very different than actually being able to go open a business yourself. So there's just a much smaller percentage of women who are able to do this. And women don't have political rights, right? They don't have property rights. And of course, uh, our mutual friend, Jamie Lemke, has done a lot on this and kind of what tensions have existed historically over time that have reduced um, those old kind of, um, well, I should say changed women's bargaining power, right? And given mm -hmm. them um, equality in terms of property. So I'm looking at a time when they don't really have either but what do they have? And so I bring religious freedom into it. And this is actually based on um, Michael Novak's book, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. He was actually a former kind of advocate of socialism. And um, he comes to kind of believe that capitalism is the way. He's also a Catholic thinker. So he's kind of in that space. And here's what he says. He says, you need economic freedom to have kind of this really productive prosperity creating society, you know, you know, economic freedom, political freedom, but you also need to have kind of cultural pluralism, right? You need to have this place where people can safely contest ideas okay. and where there's freedom of expression, where you can, he talks about kind of living out your conscience, right? And so one way to kind of think about that is religious freedom. And so, this paper is just examining that this is the the kind of little sliver, as I like the way you put it. It's a little sliver. It's not a huge, it's not a huge unlimited amount of freedom for women. But what they are allowed to do is they have a lot of autonomy in terms of how they're going to raise their children 
theologically. And so you have to think about what's going on at the time. People are being educated at home by women, right? Mm -hmm. And the business of raising up kind of um, good Christians, right? Kind of that's part of this notion of Republican motherhood, which is kind mm -hmm. of the phrase used to describe how the role of women at that time. So your household chores, you're raising the children, you're actually teaching them theology and in different, what, what kind of my research was really, it was kind of a rabbit hole, but really a fun one because I started to kind of learn about these different religious, mostly Protestant, right? There's Catholics, there's some um, Jewish contingencies, but largely kind of this early Christian culture where there's Puritans in New England, there's Catholics, there's Congregationalists, uh, and the Quakers. The Quakers are really interesting. And so these people are not necessarily friendly with each other. And that's an important point too. It's not like the first movers who are coming to the United States are like, we believe in religious freedom and religious toleration. No, they had to actually kind of slowly over time get to a position of religious freedom because outside of that, there's a lot of violence. So you can read stories of Puritans who are hanging Quakers because they didn't agree with them. So this is not just a kind of lovey-dovey story of like, oh, you know, early Americans just loved religious freedom and extended it to everyone. It's about the contestation of ideas and just even limited religious tolerance would, would lead to greater religious freedom later. But this is a space where women had kind of an autonomous zone. And so I think that's really important for what they were able to do and how they, and I can talk about this in a minute yeah. too, but I think for them, it's really important in terms of how they built up civil society. So what what were they able to accomplish um, civil society wise? What did this space allow them to provide for themselves or for their communities that they otherwise would have been unable to contribute? Right, and so um, what we know, and there's some really interesting historians who have actually, you know, tried to document fairly well um, what women, not just in terms of creating institutions, but also being able to fundraise, being able to host events in the community. So I'll get to all of that in a moment. But basically, kind of my argument is that this idea, and Tocqueville talks about this a lot when he kind of comes to the United States um, in the 19th century, and he's kind of looking around and he sees a big distinction between the way Americans kind of view their involvement in community uh, than the French do. And there's a great quote from Democracy in America where he says, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, when the Americans have a problem, they form an association. When the French have a problem, they run to the government, right? So he's kind of astounded by the fact that Americans kind of solve their own problems he calls this the art of association. And he says that they, they create these intermediating institutions mm -hmm. and actually those institutions serve as a buffer against the growth of a, a really big state. Because if you're gonna run to your neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. When you have a problem, like you're a widow, which is a common problem. Um, you're an orphan, which is a common problem. You're um, in, you know, living in abject poverty. Uh, there's all these types of social problems. And so people are living out this kind of, and he he also kind of talks about the importance of religious freedom for Americans in the fact that they're living out their beliefs. It's liberty of conscience, right? And so because women have autonomy in this zone, 
in this little space, what they're able to do is build up these important institutions that we now kind of refer to as civil society, educational organizations, benevolent organizations. It's basically um, an early social safety net and they have the freedom to do it. Right. And actually what I, my, one of my arguments is this is a backdoor mm-hmm. to the long emancipation project that's later kind of more formalized, especially in the 20th century. Um, but this is a way where they have autonomy. They don't need a lot of permission. And in some ways, you know, maybe it's their husbands keeping them busy mm-hmm. with things that are women's work, but that women's work is allowing them to actually cross races. So you see black Americans and white American women that are working together and they would later create anti-slavery movements together. I mean, that's really remarkable. So it's not a story of the market is the savior here because they didn't have access to the market. So my starting point is still, this all would have been better if they had economic and political rights. But in the face of those being restricted, they used what they had. And that kind of allowed them to create this culture of this is what we do. And so there's great historical records of, um, for example, Eliza Hamilton started one of the world, you know, kind of one of the largest orphanages in New York City. Um, And she had like $11,000 in 1827 that she had raised, which is like, I don't know, almost $350,000 today by run by women. Now she was wealthy at one time. And so I think wealthy women had more ability because they had more disposable income than maybe poor women. But what we also see is because wealthy women were engaging in community efforts to help poor women, they're also interacting with each other. Not, they're not as siloed as perhaps they otherwise would be. And we can argue that these are really important things for community and sociability, right? Yeah, building that bridging social capital that is so important to the robustness of of any community, for sure. Um, Absolutely. That's so fascinating. And I'm glad you brought up uh, Jamie Lemke. She's going to be one of our guests on this very podcast series. And um, I remember in her work, she talks about how in the United States, the majority of the public libraries that still exist today were initially started by these women's civil society organizations. And so it's not just an impact that they had hundreds of years ago, like literally the library I would go to today would have been a result of those efforts. So exactly. that's so important. And, and a huge gift to to all of us. To all of us, right. And so I think the lasting effects of that type of institution building is certainly something we should talk about, right? Because the institutions of today, we can be talking about, or future generations can be talking about 100 years from now. And so I think the lasting effects of this building up of civil society in early America I think not only do we, as to your point, we still receive the benefits of those institutions today. I think they still act as a constraint on a a growing state to some extent. Um, And I think that there might be lessons we can learn about emancipation today, both here and beyond. You know, what does, what lessons can we draw from this that are principled that help us understand? And I think one of the lessons is what access nodes or access points do women have? Whether we're talking about women that live in the poorest parts of the world today, or whether we're talking about kind of women who live in the richest parts of the world today, where is access granted? Where is access denied? And I think kind of my research is a story of just a little bit of access can be part of a much bigger project. 
Um, and people respond to incentives, as we know, as economists. And so um, helping people kind of identify what those access points are, I think, could be a really important social project. And it's not just an important social project for women. This type of framework is useful for understanding other types of, um, you know, other sources of discrimination. Uh, your discussion of women having that small sliver of freedom and, and the benefits that it brings reminds me of some of the work that Virgil Henry Storr has done on um, enslaved populations, just a little bit of, of freedom of choice even though they didn't have access to you know, self-ownership or markets, they were incredibly restricted. Just a little bit of improvement in their ability to make choices for themselves drastically improved their, their well-being. Um, so it's not just something that's important for conversation about women. It, these are conversations that um, kind of transcend. It's a very intersectional conversation. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is. And I think really at the end of the day, these kind of social questions or questions about social change to me are about thinking about how you kind of delegitimize um, power structures. Right. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Um, maybe that's what I both of us have in common with modern feminists, at least on paper. Right. Is, is thinking about how to delegitimize um, historical power structures that exclude women or exclude minorities. Um, and so that's really important. But again, it seems to me that agency over something can go a long way. A little bit of freedom can go can have a big impact. And I think for women, what this ultimately does is it starts to change their bargaining power, right? And then you start to see legal changes. And then later you start to see more, it becomes more culturally acceptable for women to do things that we take for granted today, right? So yeah, even today- It's culturally acceptable for men to do things. Like if your yeah. bargaining power wasn't uh, different than somebody's bargaining power a hundred years ago, I don't know that your husband would be doing laundry very often, right? Correct. Our internal household bargaining power has, has changed a lot too. Um, and that's also important. That's absolutely right. Um, so I wanna actually touch on some of the other work that you mentioned that you were doing um, and, and kind of toss this question at you. Is there such a thing as too much freedom or to what extent can you know, women's market participation be considered bad for, for mm -hmm. families or bad for, for society? Yeah, so um, I'm happy to talk about this. So this is kind of what I'm working on right now. And it was, if it, I'll, I'll spare everyone the names, but, um, and so I have to tell this story because I think kind of sometimes even conversations we have can really spark research projects that can be yeah. valuable. And so it was a different conversation, different crowd of people. And one of the arguments that was being made, uh, there were many, but one of the arguments that was being made was that, um, Basically, men were better able to care for their families financially in the 1970s or the 1950s than they are today. And, you know, this is just, I think, based on the person who was making this argument, I think, was, was just not in touch with all, also the research and the data there. But anyway, that's a, kind of a different point. But one of the arguments was, like, women have all this, this economic freedom, right? So they have all this economic freedom and... Um, maybe that's bad for families because now, so you look at someone like me or you, right? It's like, I'm at a conference, I'm at a colloquium, I'm flying on planes. And that means I'm not with my family. 
And so there's a trade-off there. Of course there's a trade-off there, right? right? Someone and, like me who says, you know, I want to do, I want to travel. I want to pursue research. I want to do all of these things. I don't even want to have children, right? The decline in birth rate is something to think about too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that was kind of all part of this conversation. And one of the arguments was made was that we need to use the federal government and, and have the federal government pay women to stay at home. <laughs> and so my initial reaction when my kind of jaw was not on the floor anymore was this is really wrong for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Number one, let's just forget about the women's issues at stake here. The first issue is just like, this is not going to work financially. Um, it's going to create all sorts of incentive problems. Like it's just a bad idea, but it's also offensive, right? Because it kind of presumes that the federal government or the state government knows what's best for my family dynamic. And you just made a great point. Your family dynamic is really different from my family dynamic, right? And so we want to be have, have that free society, economic freedom, political freedom, human freedom means we're free to choose to live differently. Mm -hmm. That's the point. Um, but this argument was like, no, everything was better in 1950 because women were like steaming clothes and men could go out and do manly things and pay for the family. And so like econ underlying the argument was that economic freedom has kind of emasculated men. And so I was like, I have to do something about this. <laughs> so, you know, um, save a Twitter tirade. I just said, let's just have a scholarly response. And so that's what I'm working on right now is, is, is this true? Because it is true as Thomas Sowell teaches us, right? Mm -hmm. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs, right? Right. You look at our lives, Rosie. I mean, yeah. your set of choices, leads to different outcomes and my set of choices, which is different, leads to different outcomes. Yes. And so we have, and you know, we're only doing at, at all of us at any time are only doing expected costs versus expected benefit analysis. Right. We don't know, like, would I have been happier if I could have four kids instead of two? I don't know. That and in that other reality is one that you will not know. Yes, exactly. And so we have to like muddle through all this stuff, right? And so my argument is that, yes, if the family dynamic is different, if you're going to be a working mother, wife, right, then you're going to make in, two, in the 21st century some sometimes hard trade-offs. Mm -hmm. But I would take that any day over not having the choice at all, right? So again, if it's 1940, what am I doing? I'm probably going to college so that I can find a husband if I'm going to college, right? Right. If you're going to college at all, you're going to get that MRS degree as they exactly right? call it. Exactly. And so I think this is a very toxic idea, both both from an economic freedom point of view, but also from a human <laughs> point of view. And so I wanted to kind of, res I want to respond to it. And so my argument is that this, sometimes you're not going to eat dinner together as a family five nights a week. And that I think is actually okay. Yeah. I think just because we don't eat dinner together five times or seven times a week or whatever, you know, you used to do, doesn't mean your family is falling apart. What I think this is a story about is adaptability and having economic freedom allows my family and I to have that adaptability. So mm -hmm. you can't always have your cake and eat it too, because you are going to face the trade-offs, but this is just anecdotal. I was talking to another female economist about this a couple months ago. And she said, you know, I have three kids and I'm a professor and you know what I do? She said, my husband and I are kind of, a, we, we're a team. He does stuff. I just uh, do stuff. And she said to preserve family dinner, <laughs> she makes dinner in a crock pot, brings it to her office, teaches during the day, and then brings the crock pot to the soccer field. And they're eating out of styrofoam bowls, 
but it works, right? Is it perfect? No, but it's not nothing either. And so I think sometimes what people are reacting to is a, a, a romantic cultural view of what once was. And then to use government force to try to reestablish that to me is, is not going to get them what they want. What's interesting is that some of the research on the effect of some of the, the gender equality mandates that feminists do support, um, the result is you are essentially uh, subsidizing women to stay at home and specialize in caregiving. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the findings of you know, California's uh, paid maternity leave, some of the studies suggest that, yes, more women are, are, are choosing to stay home much longer. Um, so, so it's interesting thing to bring up that these, there, there are no trade-offs, right? There are, sorry, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs, as you said. And would you suggest that that myth that we can have it all is just that, a myth, that, that statement? I love this question. Thank you for asking it. It is, I think we should all be willing to die on this hill of destroying that myth. I think it's very <laughs> counterproductive. I think it leads to personal <laughs> anguish. Exactly. We cannot have it all. Nobody can have it all. No person can have it all. Women can't have it all. Men can't. Nobody can. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is so destructive culturally because it makes you like this strive for I have to have my house perfect. I have to have my kids perfect with straight A's, college bound. I have to be advancing in my career at all times. I also have to look perfect. It's ridiculous, right? And it leads to immiseration. And I kind of think it leads to some of the, maybe some of the kind of mental health issues we're having in our society today, which is lots of anxiety, right? Like, because if you think you can have it all, but then you don't have it all, you're gonna feel like you did something wrong. I think the right narrative is, again, taking it back to kind of just lessons of human nature, but also economics is our job is to kind of be the best version of ourselves as we can. And we are finite human beings. And so we're not ever, you know, utopia and perfectibility have to be off the table for us. But this is really important for modern feminists to argue, right? It's not about everything is perfect, but the people who want to take us back to the 1950s, which are not the feminists, but maybe the modern anti-feminists, right? They're kind of reacting against some of this stuff are also wrong, right? It's like, no, we don't need to reinvent the 1950s housewife either. Um, but change is hard. And so I think, you know, living in a dynamic economy means that motherhood, fatherhood, familyhood, <laughs> that's all going to look different. And and we want people to be able to free freely choose what works best for their families whatever family size, whether it's no kids or five or 10 or whatever it is, right? (laughs) So I'm gonna ask you one last question. Uh, Should we be feminists if we love markets? Should we be feminists? I think we should. I think I'm with Deirdre McCloskey here who calls herself a free market feminist. And in a little paper she wrote, she talks about this and she says- Oh, I love that paper. Isn't it great? I think everybody should read it. And she, she basically says, um, the number of free market feminists I can find could fit in a phone booth. And I think, well, if I'm in a phone booth with you and Jamie and, and Deirdre, I'm happy. Um, but we need to extend the phone booth, right? And so I think her point that capitalism is actually the antidote to historic um, prejudices is so important. I think it's one that mainstream modern feminists 
either actively reject or are ignorant of. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, they work for policies that sound good on paper, um, but that actually create kind of these unintended consequences that really hurt women and hurt their mobility, not just economic, but otherwise. And so I think we should be feminists. I think what that means going back to my original statement is just constantly striving for the equal application of the rule of law, which is such an important component of economic freedom, right? Mm -hmm. um, and political freedom. And so those things are, I think, in front of us. I think we can make real change. Um, but I think, you know, getting the term, the feminist is like capitalist. It just has so much baggage. And so okay. I think Deirdre's paper. <laughs> yes. Well, in addition to Deirdre McCloskey and, and Jamie Lemke, are there any other scholars or books or any work of your own that you would recommend to our listeners who would like to learn more? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. Of course, I mean, it's it's always exciting when somebody reads your work, right? When you're they read your own paper. So I'll be working on these two papers in the coming year and getting those out. Um, I, you know, this is not, I'm, I'm not just saying this because you invited me on your podcast, but we should read you because I think you're you're doing really important work thinking about the intersection of these issues, both kind of from a theoretical point of view, but also the application of policy to them. And so I think that's really important for how we move um, move policy in a productive direction rather than in a direction that maybe makes us feel good, but doesn't actually accomplish good. Um, I think Julia Norgard and Jamie Lemke also have a paper on kind of just how women were able to kind of really facilitate um, kind of the provision of quasi-public goods. And so thinking about those types of issues is really important for the future. Um, and I'm also just excited to see the work that's going on under the umbrella of economic and human freedom, because I think this is the space, right, where we can really talk about women's issues um, and, and and how we make, you know, kind of advances in the right direction. Um, yeah, so so there's, so there's important people that you and I both kind of know <laughs> and uh, are affiliated with that I think are really doing important work here. Um, but I think just more broadly, I think I would love it if more people would take up this research topic, right? Because Me I think there's a lot too. to say. There are so many unanswered questions and that's Part of the reason we're having this conversation is to kind of get others hopefully interested in thinking about feminism from a free market perspective. Absolutely. So thank you so much for taking your time to share your work and your thoughts with us. Um, if you enjoyed today's conversation, head over to the FraserInstitute.org for more information and then subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you like to stream your podcasts. Don't forget to share your thoughts and questions with us on social media. And more importantly, come back and join us next time. Thank you, Anne. Thanks, Rosie. That was so fun.